Proven Paths of Success from Top 50 Companies. This is the book, Making It in America. Very long book. I read it. And I am basically going to give to you the exact key points you need to take away so you don't have to uh, spend time reading it. It's a very long book, actually. And uh, it's written a while ago, but it basically gives you the lessons from these top 50 companies. And I've extracted, I've extracted my top lessons from it. From Bill Gates to the um, Michael Dell, the owner of Dell, you know different lessons that they have found in their billion dollars spent in business and billion dollars made. So let's get right into it. This will be punchy, quick, and I will go through the many key points. You can always rewind it and re go over some of it. And uh, if you want, you can pick up this book again. It's by uh, it's by Jerry uh, Jolwinski and Robert Harmon. Proven Paths of Success, top D, top fifty companies making it in America. Let's get right into it. The 10 paths to success can be logically grouped into three basic categories that should be long-term focus for every company desiring success. Workers, customers, and process, and structure improvement. These broad, impro- these broad categories form the three parts of our book, releasing the creativity and the power of workers, pleasing customers, and finding new markets, and focusing on continuous improvement. Most importantly, these form the basic of our book's three broad themes, three broad themes that explain why American business is so resilient and will remain highly competitive. The first theme is the remarkable capacity for the American people for self-improvement and personal growth. The second theme reflects the competitive and growth-oriented nature of the American people. The third theme centers on Yankee ingenuity, the ability to innovate, apply new technologies, and uh, seek continuous improvement in the products made along the way. So let's get right into it. This is uh, coming from Tom Peters, founder and the chief of the Tom Peters Group, an investment group. So... He says the 10 basic paths themselves fit into three broad categories that every company must address, workers, customers, and process, and structure improvement. These categories define the three parts of our book in which um, contains closely related basic paths to success, releasing creativity, the power of workers, pleasing customers, finding new markets, and focusing on continuous improvement. And this is, now we're going to get into the uh, lessons from the actual businesses that I found really, really powerful throughout this book. And uh, I'm going to go kind of quick through some of these. So just listen intently and you can always rewind it or slow down the speed. So the big picture view is persuasive. The American economy is increasingly booming an economy based on knowledge. Given this, does it not stand to reason that more and more companies will be creating value and capturing by applying knowledge in new and creative ways? And if this is so, companies must educate and train their workers not just once, but continuously. We preach this here at the Modern Academy. This is what we're all about, continual learning, self-education, and absorbing knowledge. That's basically what I provide to you. For example, in this, in this episode, taking this whole entire book and condensing it into some lessons that I'm going to give to you. So the problem, the serious problem is far too many workers in the vast majority of companies today are doing just enough to get by. And thus, the companies are getting uh, maybe 60% from its workers. Very, very important to remember that. Perhaps 80 to 90% if they're lucky. Why operate at 60% or even 90% efficiency when this can be boosted through relatively small investment training? Indeed, 60%, 90% just won't cut it anymore. 
In the ruthless competitive global arena, companies must approach 100% from their workers if they want to make it. Very, very important to know this, especially if you are running a big company or plan to one day, realizing this, and then if neither of those, realizing it in yourself. Think of your, you know, your goals as the company and you're working, you're working towards it. So you need to be sapping out at least 90% of, of your productivity. And uh, what's interesting, this was a company and the lesson basically extracted, this was a, a what exactly? It was a Nucor owned this uh, company. And uh, anyways, he said the lessons, lesson, handsomely rewarding good performance with bonuses and incentive pay distributed in equal shares is a critical part of employee empowerment. With everything equally shared, everyone is looking out for good performance in others and they aren't afraid to point out when performance falls short. Very, very important. So that's talking about incentive pay. You know, as uh, Charlie Munger said, be very wary of perverse incentives. So if employees are being paid by the hour, that's a perverse incentive because they're not incentivized to do the best for the company. They're incentivized just to spend that hour. So in a lot of companies, you see employees wasting time. And so now we're getting into the good stuff. So this is another lesson from another great company. And this is the Great Plains. So Customers are best served when a superb outside system, quote unquote, is contemplated by a great inside spirit, quote unquote. The visible outside system can consist of forced registration, charging for services, guaranteed response time, an automatic call distribution system, communications packages. This is literally Amazon. (laughs) The more hidden inside spirit may consist of pride, personal belief in the mission statement, teamwork, an informal and fun environment, company's concern for its employees. Amazon does majority of these things. Some people, you know, see it a little, as a little controversial, but I encourage you, especially if you're listening to this in uh, this time during the coronavirus, to look at Amazon stock and analyze how successful their company is, even in this time where tons of other companies are absolutely bombing the stock market. Amazon is really going to show their uh, strengths during this time of quarantine in the U.S. especially. So now we're moving into Dell, and this is very, very interesting. So in May 1984, Michael Dell, a college student, was just starting PCs Limited with $1,000 in savings, operating out of his apartment. Um, Service, unprecedented service, in the rarefied, often haughty era of the computer industry, given the consumer the exact computer he or she wants provide the products quickly in the reasonable prices. This is basically him tailoring the products, why he became successful. And I just gave you a little background of how he started. This is jumping right into his business. So provide the backup support for his computers is in their hands. Undergo unending scrutiny of customer needs and get the word out to millions through aggressive jazzy ads and a huge mail order business. When you constantly talk with your customers over toll-free telephone lines, obviously it's a little outdated, taking orders, dealing with questions and problems, you find about their likes and dislikes. Very, very important. That's uh, market feedback. A lot of, you know, Charlie Munger, um, Peter F. Drucker, one of the best business uh, teachers, talk a lot about that. Uh, market feedback is vitally important. All of the information goes into the company's massive customer database. They were one of the pioneers of this. Now pretty much every company does this and which has well over 1 million entries. Very, very interesting. They were able to apply this even back then. And to really understand Dell, you have to understand where it puts its money and where it doesn't. It doesn't put its money into hard assets. It owns no plants, 
Rather, it leases two small factories to assemble computers from outsourced parts. For, mul- for a multi-billion dollar company, its investments in fixed assets is a minuscule $55 million. This enables Dell to take, 30, uh, take in $35 sales of every dollar in fixed assets. Um, for another leading computer maker, it's three. So that's a huge difference, 35 and three, because of that uh, margin they've created by just leasing. And uh, now moving on to a Harley Davidson, this is actually pretty interesting. So the president, um, Richard Tierlink at the time, president and CEO says, we've created a vision that was simple, survival. A lot of businesses ought to first decide how they're going to survive. They should get right down to the meat of the issue, survival and customer satisfaction. So this is actually kind of interesting. You know, um, Harley Davidson was in the verge of a bankruptcy in 1985, and they basically decided to, you know, if you're going to learn, why not go straight to those that are beating you so badly? So as Abraham Lincoln said, learn from everybody, even if it's what not to do. So learn from your competitors. You want to constantly be learning and, and receiving feedback. And he said, uh, you know, we are being wiped out by the Japanese because they are they were better managers. It wasn't robotics or culture or morning uh, calisthenics or in-company songs. It was professional managers who understood their business and paid attention to detail. It all began with an innovative form of customer research. Senior managers were told to hop on their Harleys and take cross-country trips to listen to Harley companies or Harley customers wherever they would find them. This is another um, form of market research and market feedback. So listening from your customers and then tailoring your product based on that. So cross-country trips to Harley customers, wherever they could find them. What they found was virtually every Harley motorcycle at the bike rallies was modified and customized. So if this is what customers liked, why not have Harley do it for them? Many ideas from this vast research and development field team were incorporated into later designs. All along, however, the company had been sensitive to fiercely loyal riders' demand for legendary Harley look. Very, very important. It's interesting because Harley Davidson today is a huge collectible. You know, there's people that are massively into it. They have those Harley Davidson museums that uh, that people love and are coveted, and that just shows it's a great business lesson in uh, listening to your customers. So, now moving on to the Rubbermaid company. All right, so the CEO, um, Wolf Schmidt, says um, new products and new market are always on the agenda here. There's not a day that goes by that in some way we're not thinking about new products, talking about new products, or working on new products. So I think you lead by example. You have to be interested. Be in the game. Again, this just backs up what we've learned. And what he says is we encourage everybody at every level to innovate. This sums up Chuck Carroll, president uh, chief operating officer and former head of home products division, Rubbermaid's largest division. We constantly feed on that. One concrete way in which innovation is fostered is supporting people who try but fail in the sense that the product is not introduced or is dropped. As Wolf Schmidt says, those are the people that need the support the most. Creating a willingness and desire on people's part to participate in the process of risk-taking, that's what it's all about. That encouragement helps people think big. It's the reason Gary Madison, the president and general manager of Rubbermaid Specialty Products, could say every team, every year, is charged with reinventing what they have. This is the, true for even the most mundane items. A, a vice president of marketing at Specialty Products said that we are reinventing the bird feeder line every year. Very interesting. Talking about uh, 
just innovation as far as it comes to uh, products. And that's lessons from the Rubbermaid company. So, um, and, uh, you know, spectacular product innovation requires setting goals for new product development and the and developing a creative culture spirit that engages everyone to come up with new ideas, reinvent old products, take ideas from everywhere, sweat the details needed to improve the products and see how trends create opportunities. Very, very important. So uh, now moving on to Bill Gates. Bill Gates, who dropped out of Harvard at 19 to start a company with his high school buddy, Paul Allen, saw only one clear challenge in the 1980s. Continue to turn out blockbuster software products that would make Microsoft the intelligence that drives computers. In the 1990s, he saw even more ambitious challenge. Develop new software products that would make Microsoft the intelligence behind the emerging information highway. So powerful, and I really think he was able to do this. Just look at Bill Gates' net worth over time. I mean, richest man in the world for a long period of time. He actually just stepped down recently as the uh, chairman. And there, there's a little bit of controversy around him and the coronavirus and him stepping down, a lot of CEOs stepping down. You can look into that if you want, but uh, again, learn from everybody, even if it's what not to do. So take the best, leave the rest from Bill Gates. You don't need to get caught up in the uh, conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Just take vital lessons from him. You know, it was insane that he's able to drop out from Harvard 19 and then flash forward to today, uh, be where he's at. So lesson, use major new products and technologies to create new companies thus providing incentives for entrepreneurs within your company to do their best and create more new products. Very, very powerful. I, I find a lot of lessons from this book very powerful. Bill Gates was on the biggest one and so was Michael Dell. So let's see, this is a lesson from J&J. Looking at the big picture in its 106 years, J&J has never posted a loss over the past decade and that. So never posted a loss, that's what's important. Lesson, use decentralization to give your business units abundant creative freedom and resources and balance centralized culture with a strong structure of core values and new products will pour through. So this is open systems lessons. This is uh, Sun Microsoft Open Systems. Open Systems is one of the founding philosophies of Sun Sun Microsystems. For most of the 1980s, Sun was the one champion of this concept in the computer industry. In the 1990s, it was becoming rapidly accepted by many former components. Open systems are based on freely available vendor-neutral interface standards and therefore offers users a wide, wide range of product choices from multiple vendors. The ability to select multiple products from multiple vendors and integrate them seamlessly on powerful networks. And although today this might not sound uh, interesting, it's really about innovating this, pioneering these things when they started. And now most companies use these lessons. And that's why a book like this is so vital because you can take this knowledge from past years of businesses going through overt trial and error and simulate it and go, okay, this shouldn't be something we aim to do. This should be an unquestionable standard in our company or in your small business. Um, but really, you know, if you own a large company, these are important to uh, apply today, making sure you have the correct foundations and learning through other people's mistakes. As Warren Buffett says, uh, you, you learn from mistakes, but it's a heck of a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes. Very, very important to remember that lesson. As Richard Dawkins says in The Selfish Gene, 
what makes us innately human, one of our main things is we can learn through simulation where other organisms can only learn overtly through trial and error. So by reading books like this, by learning from uh, you know, top businesses, you can simulate and use that ability that makes us human to, uh, to simulate overt trial and error without having to go through those mistakes. And combining that with what Warren Buffett said is that it's a heck of a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes. You have the ultimate system. So keep on learning. That's really what the Modern Academy is all about. And uh, now we're moving into an increased speed and agility company. So the formula is simple, but powerful. Technology plus organizational change equals higher productivity. And uh, this kind of goes into very, very innovative companies of these times. And uh, this is the uh, Badger Meter Company. So lesson, aim for selling virtual products to your customers, unique products that don't actually exist until the customer needs them and that the customer can make a continuous stream of changes to. This will require the right investment in equipment and training. Very, very powerful. You know, you see people selling online courses now, kind of different informational products, and that's really what this is, is it's not a tangible product. It's basically selling knowledge, which is one of the most important commodities. You know, an easy way you can tell this is important is because when uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were asked if they were granted any superpower, what would they have? They said being the fastest readers in the world. So this shows you just how important it is. And that uh, company that basically stated that, that lesson, is uh, very was very ahead of their time, and people are still uh, applying this today. And if you can apply that where it's you know basically creating products that are able to sell on demand and tailored to the customer – that's the most powerful thing. That's what pretty much all the top companies can do. Think about Uber, think about Airbnb, think about Amazon. They all have this flywheel effect. So the paranoid survive and thrive. Intel, only the paranoid survive. After reading thousands of words about Intel's greatest comebacks and accomplishments in the recent years and conducting a full day of interviews there and touring one of their fabs, quote unquote, which means uh Fabrication facilities where semiconductors are produced, those four words of Andrew Grove, the current president and CEO, stands out best, explaining Intel at getting the hearts of those Intel such a great success. So the paranoids survive. Very, very important to realize that. And that goes on with uh, you know market research. You need to be constantly studying your competitors and being one step ahead. So becoming customer friendly. This is, again, uh, this is basically a stress test lesson from Intel. One of the most important things Intel does to ensure customer satisfaction is test each chip thoroughly before it leaves the factory. And, you know, think of this. Obviously, these, all these things are analogies. They're true for these companies. But when you're learning them, you don't want to just take it for face value. You want to be able to apply it to your life. And really, you can apply these business lessons to any area of your life. And uh, it's really interesting. So again, is they always get tested thoroughly before they leave the factory because chips end up in applications ranging from automobiles, engines to airplane controls, panels, panels and factories. They must be able to withstand a wide range of environmental stresses. Perhaps the best way to delight customers is to deliver high value to them. Grove has set this goal for the company to enable PC producers to double the performance of their machines at every point this year. Very, very powerful lesson from Intel on how to stress test. And stress testing is one of the most powerful tools that top companies use. 
this actually wraps up the uh, lessons from this book. Again, I highly recommend if you'd like, pick up this book. And, um, you know, after reading it, it is pretty long, but uh, it's a fairly large book, pretty long. I finished it in around a day and a half. But again, it's Making It in America, Proven Paths to Success from the Top 50 Companies. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and subscribe. We cover all sorts of books. I am on a book day pace reading, so I extract lessons from these and other things that I'm uh, learning through my business and through different courses I'm on online and reading philosophy and things of this nature. Uh, I apply them and extract lessons to give to you guys. We usually do around three podcasts a day, one five-minute, one 10-minute, and one 15-minute. Again, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found some great lessons in this, and I apologize if I was going quick, but I wanted to knock this out in one episode. Usually we don't do 20 minutes, but uh, this is an exception. So again, thanks for listening, and until next time.